Our topic, Modern Evangelicalisms, Rejection of the Christian Sabbath, a Biblical Examination, or a Biblical Analysis. We're going to, somebody in our congregation asked me to do this a while ago, so I figured I'd do it. I had a a rough week, and uh, uh, most people don't realize that the modern evangelicals, the vast majority of them have been strongly influenced by uh, the heresy of dispensationalism. And they actually believe there's only nine commandments. They believe that the fourth commandment's been abrogated and we're under no obligation anymore to keep the fourth commandment. Uh, so I thought I'd do a little talk on that and show why it is still binding and show you some of the arguments, uh, if we have willing, Lord willing time to finish today, why they argue it's been abrogated. I'll read Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor the stranger who is within your gates. Okay, so it applies to the Jew. It applies to the Gentile. It applies to the slave. It applies to the animals. So it's not simply a Jewish commandment. And then let's look at the the reason. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And of course that occurred before the Jews even existed. That occurred when there was just Adam and Eve. And then we're going to just look at one other passage real quickly and I'll get to this toward the end here. Matthew 12, 1 to 8. This is one of their great proof texts, uh, supposedly against the Sabbath. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. (coughs) But he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house and ate the showbread, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that that on the Sabbath the priests of the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. And notice he says he doesn't say that they, they are, evangelicals quote this, and say, oh, Jesus overturned the Sabbath. He came to get rid of the Sabbath. He said his disciples were guiltless. And he gives arguments from the Old Testament scriptures. He's not arguing that the Sabbath is over. He's arguing against the Pharisaical additions to the Sabbath. But we'll get to that. Due to the widespread influence of dispensationalism on modern evangelicalism, the vast majority of evangelical preachers today teach that the fourth commandment, or the requirement of a special holy day, one day, one day a week, Obviously, the the obligation to worship the Lord and meditate on his salvation is a command. We're obligated to honor the Lord one day a week and rest for the concentrated public worship of God and rest from one's labors. uh, They teach that this is abrogated. It's no longer binding. They believe it's a Jewish commandment for the Jews. The passage we just read along with others, for example, Romans 14, where some regard one day above another. Of course, he's talking about Jewish holy days that have been ceremonial holy days, not the Sabbath, are used as proof text. 
even John MacArthur, who I think is the best of the evangelical preachers out there, he's the most orthodox. And one thing I love about MacArthur, he stands up against the charismatic heresy. He stands up against the, the prosperity preachers. He's willing to call sin a sin. He's not willing to compromise. But he's terrible on the Sabbath, and he's terrible on eschatology. <laughs> he's horrible on eschatology because he's been strongly influenced by dispensationalism. He teaches, I saw him preach. I should have looked up the sermon again. I saw the sermon a while ago that the Sabbath has been abrogated. And he's wrong. The day's been changed because the day itself was positivistic. In other words, the day itself could be changed, but the, the requirement, the moral requirement to worship God, it's a moral requirement. It's not positive. We're obligated to worship God. We're his creatures, and of course we've been saved. That is not, that is a moral commandment that cannot be abrogated. So even John McGough, uh the best of the modern evangelical Baptist fundamentalist preachers regards the fourth commandment as being abrogated. Given the fact that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance and one of the Ten Commandments, placing it squarely within God's own summary of the moral law, the Ten Commandments are a summary of the moral law, and even all churches, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and even Baptists and evangelicals in the 19th century until the rise of dispensationalism used to recite the Ten Commandments in their churches, and children used to be required to memorize the Ten Commandments. Well, dispensationalism did away with that. And even the great uh, preacher uh, who was there before James Montgomery Boyce, I forget his name, I have his commentary on Romans. Uh, he was a Presbyterian, but he was a dispensationalist. He said it was a terrible thing, a terrible day when all the Reformed denominations put the Ten Commandments in their creeds and confessions. No, it wasn't a terrible day. It was totally biblical because it is a summary of the moral law. And, of course, the best exposition we find within <clears throat> the creeds, the symbols, the Reformed symbols, is the larger catechism. So we would do well to examine the evidence for the continuing validity of the Fourth Commandment in the New Covenant era <clears throat> and also to compare the common <clears throat> modern evangelical arguments against a New Covenant Sabbath. Is the obligation to worship God one day a week and rest one day a week, is it binding? Well, let's look first at the Sabbath as a creation ordinance. Those who reject the continuation of the fourth commandment into the New Covenant era do so on the assumption that the Sabbath is Jewish and part of a ceremonial law. And we know from the book of Galatians, and we know from statements in Colossians, and other, especially the book of Hebrews, that the ceremonial law was set out of gear or abrogated by the coming of Christ. The types, the shadows, have been abrogated because they've been fulfilled in Christ. Well, they believe that applies to the Sabbath. They believe that the Sabbath is Jewish. Well, there's a problem with that interpretation, and in that the reason for the Sabbath, given in the Ten Commandments in Exodus, they the reason has changed in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, it points back to salvation. In Exodus, it points back to creation. But the reason is not ceremonial, and it does not apply to the Jews. It applies to all humanity. <clears throat> In other words, it served a purpose under the Mosaic economy and does not apply to the Gentiles, and must not be advocated or required under the New Covenant economy. That's what we're told. But there are serious problems with this view. <clears throat> and the first is, is that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. A creation ordinance is something that happens in creation that God intended to be universal and obligatory on all mankind. It doesn't just apply to the Jews. They don't exist yet. Well, they exist in Adam, I suppose. 
But Adam is a representative of the whole human race. Every human being that exists comes from Adam. The only different, the only one that's unique is Christ, who is the second Adam, and he came by a work of the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary. <clears throat> Creation ordinances, and everybody agrees on this, this is not something unique, are ethical norms which are based on the work of God in creation. They depict the constitution of things as they were intended to be from the Creator's hand. <clears throat> they cover and regulate the whole gamut of life, bearing children, superintending the earth as a responsible steward before and under God. Okay, we're not here to exploit the earth, we're here to have dominion over it in a way that makes it better and improves it. Of course, under God, uh, responsibly ruling the creat creatures of all creation, finding fulfillment and satisfaction in work, labor, resting on the Sabbath, and enjoying marriage as a gift from God. The first marriage ceremony was Adam and Eve, and God was the best man. Literally. Adam, here's Eve. I created her, for, and, he, and when he saw her, of course, she wasn't wearing any clothes, and of course, she was the perfection of beauty. The fall hadn't happened yet. He was totally blown away. Wow. Flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. That creation ordinances have a universal ethical obligation inherent in them is clear from Jesus' teaching on divorce. Matthew 19, 4 and following. Now, Jesus could have pointed back to the command not to commit adultery. He could have turned back. He could have got, talked about the law of God relating to fornication. He goes back to the creation ordinance of marriage. God created one man, one woman, and he designed marriage and instituted it. And that's a permanently binding thing, and it's still binding in the days of Jesus, thousands of years after the creation. And the reason, of course, given in the fourth commandment in Exodus for obeying the Sabbath, uh, 20 verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Genesis 2, 2-3 says, On the seventh day God ended his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. And then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God created and made. Now the fact that the Holy Spirit records that God rested from his creative labors on the seventh day, blessed it and sanctified it, and by that it means he set it apart from the other days and made it special. It's a special holy day. Christmas, December 25th, or the Ukrainian slash Russian Christmas, which or the Greek Orthodox Christmas, which is January 7th this year, uh, it's not a holy day because God didn't sanctify it. Man sanctified it. It's an unholy day. It's a pagan day. <clears throat> Set it apart from other days. It's significant. Now, what could be the meaning of God's resting the seventh day and hallowing it and blessing it with respect to mankind? For he did not bless it and sanctify it with respect to himself, or that within himself he might observe it, which is most absurd. God doesn't need to rest. God is always active. Uphold the very atoms, everything we touch, he's constantly observing it, uh, upholding it. And it is unreasonable to suppose that he hallowed it only with respect to the Jews, a peculiar nation which rose up over 2,000 years after the creation. So it applies to all mankind, obviously. God's mode of operation is the exemplar on the basis of which the sequence for uh, man is patterned. Because, you know, God 
days, 24 hours, God is not limited or affected by time at all. God is outside of time. So this is clearly done for man's benefit. There can be little doubt, for, therefore, that in Genesis 2-3, there is at least an allusion to the blessing of the seventh day of, in man's week. And when we compare it to more closely with Exodus 20, verse 11, there is a strong presumption in favor of the view that it refers specifically and directly to the Sabbath instituted for man. <clears throat> and when I say man, I mean mankind. Once again, the Jews don't come into existence for a, for a, thousand, a couple thousand years. They don't exist yet. This is way before them. This is before Noah. This is the creation. In Scripture, the number seven, of course, implies perfection. It is therefore apt for denoting perpetuity. The weekly Sabbath and the seven-day week is a God-created aspect of our existence on Earth. Okay, if you go to other planets, for example, we have a seven-day week. And I just watched a really interesting thing on YouTube about the origin of uh, our calendar. Uh, there were, there was the ancient calendar, then there was the uh, the calendar that was made in the, oh, I forget what it was, AD 50. Then there was a Gregorian calendar, then there's the modern version of it. They kept improving it, making it, uh, improving upon it, making it more accurate. For some of the old calendars, like we, ha what we do is we add a day in February here and there to make up because... 365 days a year, it's a little longer than that. So they have a day to add in February. Well, in the old days, they would just add like five extra days every once in a while. And now it's more accurate. <clears throat> they had the Gregorian calendar, and I, I forget to memorize all the names, but it's very interesting. But we have a seven-day week. That's part of the fabric of our creation on Earth. But if you go to Saturn, if you go to Pluto, uh, they don't have seven-day weeks. Their week might be 20 days. But here we have a seven-day week, so it's part of the fabric of creation for man. <clears throat> the week is not of astronomical, astrological, numerical, historical, or logical, but of divine origin, as is a Sabbath demarcator, which reigned not after the exile, nor even at Sinai, but in Eden, when God finished and rested from the creation works and blessed and sanctified the Sabbath day preeminently to God himself, to the land, to the animals, and possibly also to the angels. So God speaking in special revelation reveals to man the particular day in which he is to rest and worship. It's interesting. Uh, I think it was Napoleon. It was after the French Revolution. Napoleon comes to power. And he tried to get rid of the seven-day work week. They tried to be very secular. They tried to be anti-Christian, basically. And I think they tried to go to a 10-day work. It didn't work. They ended up going back to the seven-day week. Uh, that's just natural. The seven-day week is what works. And even pagans all over the world who have nothing to do with the Bible practice the seven-day week. Now, the fact that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance proves that it applies to all mankind, not just to the Jews. For Adam, of course, was the covenant representative of the whole human race. Furthermore, every human being, Christ Jesus Christ accepted, descended from Adam by natural generation. The separation of humanity into distinct language groups did not occur until long after the fall at Babel. Genesis chapter 11. <clears throat> if Adam had not fallen, the Sabbath ordinance would still have regulated the activities of himself and his posterity. The seventh day in which God rested was man's full, first full day of existence, the first full day of unfallen communion and fellowship with God. Thus, not only was Adam to pattern himself after the divine example, 
but Adam's rest was spent in celebration of God the Creator. The Sabbath rest was not just the cessation of labor, but a time of worship, fellowship, and the celebration of God. So yes, we are to rest. There are jobs that are jobs of mercy and necessity. You got to have the police. You got to have doctors and nurses and hospitals. You don't need shopping malls. You don't need movie theaters. You don't need any of that. But there are jobs of necessity and mercy. We'll deal with that when we get to Matthew 12. God fully intended that unfallen man in his task of godly dominion would need to suspend his weekly labors in order to refresh himself with the exercises of concentrated worship. This fact is often overlooked because as fallen creatures we tend to view rest as an autonomous time of self-centered relaxation. In other words, it's for us. Time to go to the beach. Let's go bowling. It's time for us to have fun. Go to the shopping mall. No, that's not what it's for. It's for us to celebrate God, not ourselves. It's not a humanistic day. It's a God-centered day. <clears throat> Yet rest for the people of God is not just a cessation of work. It is also a leaning upon the breast of Christ in worship and communion. The fact that the Sabbath is a creation ordinance dispels another misconception. The idea that the weekly Sabbath is part of the ceremonial law. And this has been abrogated by the death of Christ. This assertion cannot be true because the Sabbath was instituted before the fall of Adam into sin. Through the types, the ceremonial laws taught the people of God certain things regarding the Messiah to come and their separation from the pagan nations around them. What's the first thing God institutes after the fall of man? What ceremony did he institute? The sacrificing of animals. God killed clean animals and covered Adam and Eve with their skins. Because now they were guilty being naked. They couldn't be naked anymore. They had to be covered. Their guilt had to be covered. They were in shame. And then we see right away Cain and Abel. Abel offered a sacrifice of a clean animal. We see Noah offering sacrifices for his family of clean animals. So God instituted the ceremonial law as soon as man had fallen. But the Sabbath was before the ceremonial law. It was before the fall. It cannot be ceremonial. You can't connect it to the Jews. Now, were there ceremonial Sabbaths connected to the Jews? Yes, there were many of them. <clears throat> and there were ceremonial aspects integrated into the permanent Sabbath that had to be done on that day. For example, certain, there was a double sacrifice in the temple. There was the burning of the special incense in the temple. There was a number of things that had to be done every seventh day in the temple. But the seventh day itself, as a day of rest and worship, existed before the Jews existed. When God instituted <clears throat> the Sabbath, it was a permanent, moral, abiding law. The only thing that we could say is positivistic about it would be the, the, day, the seventh day, because God's going to change the seventh day from the seventh day to the first day of the week in honor of the recreation by Christ. And that is foreshadowed and typified in the Old Testament. How many people were in the ark? Eight. What was the day of circumcision, the day of the symbol of regeneration and salvation? What was the day? The eighth day, which is what? The first day of the week. If you look up the number eight in your concordance and go back to the Old Testament and look at how the number eight is used in the Old Testament, it's clearly teaching a new beginning. 
It's clearly pointing to a new creation. It's clearly pointing to the salvation achieved by Christ. The second creation, the second Adam brings in a new creation. So the day can be changed, but the moral aspect, our obligation to worship God and meditate on him, that is not positivistic, that is moral. And that's why it's part of the fourth commandment. That's why it's part of the Ten Commandments. The idea that we have nine commandments is bizarre, because to the Jews, the number ten is the number of completeness. <clears throat> the idea that the weekly Sabbath was ceremonial comes from a confusing of the various Judaical ceremonial Sabbaths within the, with the weekly Sabbath. The weekly Sabbath is a creation ordinance, which was in effect before the fall, but the various ceremonial Sabbaths were instituted under Moses for the distinct purpose of pointing to Jesus Christ. Thus they are called by Paul weak and beggarly elements and shadows of things to come. <clears throat> and we're going to deal with the proof text that the Sabbath is only ceremonial in a moment. Also, I didn't go into detail here, but I could have. If you read the book of Exodus, it's very interesting. When does God give the Jews the law? Well, he gives them the Ten Commandments in chapter 19. Directly. He speaks the Ten Commandments directly. Then he gives them a copy of the Ten Commandments written in stone by the finger of God. And he used the Son of God to do that. Jesus Christ wrote the Ten Commandments with his own finger on tablets of stone. And, um, but in, Je in Exodus chapter 16, uh, and you see the book of Exodus before the giving of the law, the Jews are observing the Sabbath, and somebody gets in trouble for collecting sticks on the Sabbath before the giving of the law. So this, they were already honoring the Sabbath, and also uh, Francis Nigeli, who wrote a big, thick book on the Sabbath, he notes that uh, he did a study of Noah, and it's clear that Noah was keeping a weekly Sabbath. So, you know, it's clearly not a Jewish thing. It's a man thing. It's for mankind. <clears throat> now, we have an additional reason. All men are obligated to worship God due to the fact they've been created by God, and God is sovereign. He created us. He gave us life. He gives you breath, the food you eat, the air you breathe, the car you drive. Everything you have is from God. But Christians have an additional reason to worship God, and that's going to be related in Deuteronomy, and of course the New Testament, in that we've been saved by God. So pagans have a moral obligation, in fact, that they've been created by God, but Christians have a double obligation. You've been created by God, and you've been saved by God. So you have a double obligation. And the morality, universally, and perpetual nature of the weekly Sabbath is also demonstrated by the location in the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. We ask, did God place a temporary, purely Jewish ceremonial law in the midst of the summary of God's moral precepts? And the answer is, of course not. Absolutely not. The number 10 in Holy Scriptures, I'm not going to go and prove this, but this is agreed upon by all scholars, signifies completeness and perfection. The idea that God has really only given his people nine moral commandments is absurd. The fact that the fourth commandment is part of the Decalogue proves that it is the same kind or nature as the other nine precepts. That is, it is moral. It is moral. And that's why it applies to the animals, and it applies to the slaves, and it applies to the stranger within your gates. It applies to both Jew and Gentile. If you study the Old Testament and you look at the ceremonial laws, the Gentiles living within Israel, they had to keep the moral laws. And if they didn't keep the moral, if they committed any crimes that were moral in content, they were punished accordingly. They were, they were not allowed to perform the ceremonial laws because that was for the Jews only, unless they converted and became a proselyte and became a Jew. Then they could perform the ceremonial laws. But the moral laws, the Gentiles were obligated to keep. Why? And if you read the judgment of 
in the judgments of the pagan nations in books like Jeremiah and, and Isaiah. God judged them for moral infractions. He never judged those nations for not keeping the ceremonial laws, because that applied to the Jews only. <clears throat> As part of the Ten Commandments, the, ten, the Sabbath received the same special awesome introduction, Exodus 19.16 and following, dignity and honor as the other nine commandments. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments were spoken directly to the people by God himself. From the mount. Also see uh, Exodus 20, verse 1 and 19. They were written on tablets of stone by God himself to signify their importance and perpetual nature. Exodus 24, 12, 32, 16. They were taken and placed within the Ark of the Covenant. Exodus 25, 16. None of these privileges were conferred upon the ceremonial law. And if these and other prerogatives did put a difference and show a difference to be put between them and the other nine commandments and all other judicial or ceremonial laws, why not between them and this also? Furthermore, the wording of the fourth commandment reveals its universal nature because the heathen and even the animals were required to rest. If you have a plow and you use a horse or, a, or an oxen, that plow, that, that oxen and horse gets to rest once a week for a whole day. That applies to all work animals, and it still applies today. You're not to work your animals seven days a week, only six days a week if you have work animals. The Sabbath was enjoined not only by the Israelites who were in covenant with God together with their servants, who were made proselytes in their religion, and were ob obligated to observe the ceremonial and other, other positive laws, but it was also to be observed by the stranger within their gates, namely the heathen who dwelt among them, who were not in covenant with God and did not observe the ceremonial law. In fact, they were forbidden to observe the ceremonial law. Now, to, to see the convincing force of this fact, the reader, uh, we must contrast the jealous care with which the stranger, the pagan foreigner, sojourning in, among the Jews, was excluded from all share in the Levitical worship. No foreigner could partake of the Passover. It was sacrilege. It was at the peril of his life that he presumed to enter the inner court of the temple, where the bloody sacrifice was offered. Now, when this foreigner was required to keep the Sabbath, along with the families of Israel, this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is not a ceremonial commandment, like the Passover, and the altar, and the incense, but it's universal. Now, some have suggested that the introduction of the law, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, as well as the restatement of the fourth commandment in Deuteronomy, which discusses the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, instead of God's creation of the world, is evidence that the Sabbath was an ordinance for the Jewish nation and not New Testament believers. And this, is, this argument's actually been used against theonomy as well saying the, the law of Moses just applied to the Jews. It doesn't apply to us at all. That's a dispensational argument. Well, such an argument falls to the ground when one considers the preface concerns all the commandments, not just the fourth. Nobody's going to hold that lying, adultery, theft, and murder was permissible outside of the nation of Israel. Nobody's going to hold that position. In Exodus, reference is made to the creative work of God undertaken in six days in which God rested on the seventh. The two reasons, of course, Exodus 20, verse 11, and Deuteronomy 5, 15, where it talks about their deliverance from Egypt, salvation, complement each other and both emphasize man's dependence on God. <clears throat> to rest on the Sabbath day was to remember that man, 
as a part of God's created order was totally dependent on the Creator. Man's divinely appointed task to have dominion over the created order, Genesis 1.26, carried with it also the privilege of sharing in God's rest. The Exodus 2 was a type of creation, and this forms an analogy to the creation account in Genesis. It's a new beginning. The Exodus from Egypt marks, in effect, the creation of God's people as a nation, and the memory of that event was also a reminder to the Israelites of their total dependence upon God. And that explains, of course, why, after the resurrection of Christ, in honor of Jesus Christ, that which is also prophesied in the types of, regarding the eighth, the number eight, and the eighth day, and circumcision and all those things, eight people on the ark, and also uh, there's a number of them in the Old Testament, but also it's prophesied in the prophets. Uh, the psalm that, 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 I think it's Psalm 18, or no, 118, they sang it on the night of the Passover. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us be glad and rejoice in it. That is a prophecy of the resurrection day of Christ. The resurrection day is the new beginning of not just the salvation of the elect, which is wonderful, but the, the recreation and salvation of planet Earth and the whole universe. The Bible's very clear that the, the fall, everything that happened in the fall will be turned back by what Christ did. And we'll have a new heavens and a new earth where no more sin dwells or any harm to anybody will happen, but it'll be a, a time of bliss and joy. Now, the confusion of some scholars regarding the morality of the Sabbath is, to a degree, understandable in that the moral Sabbath was incorporated into the Mosaic administration in a unique way. The ceremonial Sabbath and the ceremonial temple system was imposed upon the ancient moral Sabbath as clothes are placed upon the body. <clears throat> the Sabbath was also incorporated into the judicial laws of Israel. Furthermore, the Sabbath was made a perpetual covenant and signed between Jehovah and the Jewish nation. And these elements are brought out in Exodus 31, 12 to 18. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep. Notice the plural. So it's inclusive of the ceremonial Sabbath. For it is a sign between me and you and throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You will keep the Sabbath, singular. Therefore it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, and the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work in the Sabbath, he shall. Uh, therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he amend, made an end of speaking with them on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with a finger of God. As I just noted, the Sabbath is a moral obligation on all mankind. It's a creation ordinance. But in the, in the system of salvation, with the Jews being delivered from Egypt, it becomes special in a unique way to the Jews as well. That fact is placed upon the moral Sabbath. It does not eliminate or erase the fact that it is a moral Sabbath, if you understand what I'm saying. An attempt must be made to distinguish between the permanent moral Sabbath and the temporary mosaic additions to it. The ceremonial Sabbath, the ceremonies of the central sanctuary, the Sabbath is a covenant sign, and the civil penalty of death provisions are additions to the moral Sabbath. 
The priest carried on the duties above the tabernacle, about the tabernacle. The bread of the presence was to be set on the table in the holy place on the Sabbath day, Leviticus 24.8. A special sacrifice, in addition to the ordinary daily sacrifice, was to be offered on the Sabbath day, Numbers 28.9-10. The rite of circumcision was to be performed on the Sabbath day. If it was the eighth day after the child's birth, Leviticus 12.3 and John 7.22. The Sabbath is listed among the sacred festivals, the holy appointed feast of the Lord, and Leviticus 23, 1-3. It, like them, was proclaimed to be a holy convocation, 23-3. The restatement of the Sabbath law, the conclusion of the whole series of laws dealing with the temple cultists, taken together with the death penalty provisions, and the Sabbath as a perpetual covenant, points to Israel's close personal relationship to, to Yahweh, its separateness from the pagan nations, and the ceremonial cult is the shedding of blood, which makes this covenantal relationship and separateness from the heathen possible. So, yes, we have this creation ordinance. It's a moral. It's a binding all humanity. But God takes it, and he applies it in a special way to the Jews as his people. Remember, the Jews are the Old Testament version of the church. Now the church is universal. And he does so because they're a special people, and they've been saved. They have an additional obligation that the Gentiles don't have. But that doesn't eliminate the fact that it's a moral uh, commandment in the Ten Commandments, and it's also part of, it's a creation ordinance. Here's what Dabney says. The Southern theologian. In Exodus 20, verse 11, a worldwide and permanent ground for the Sabbath command is assigned. For in six days the Lord made heavens and the earth, etc. While nothing is said about the Exodus, the explanation is clear. The Hebrews had had the reason to keep the Sabbath, which the whole human race has. God sanctifying it at the creation of the race and commanding it to be kept by all the race. But he had this additional reason, that God had now blessed them above all, above all other tribes. Hence, they were bound by gratitude also to keep the Sabbath. End of quote. Now, Jehovah is honored corporately in public worship every Sabbath day. In corporate worship in both Testaments, by the way, was offered who through who? Jesus, the Son of God. The, the types and the ceremonies, the blood of the sacrifice is pointed to Christ because the blood of bolts and goats, we're told in Hebrews, doesn't really eliminate sin. It points to the Jesus Christ who does eliminate sin. So all acceptable worship in both Testaments after the fall is offered through Jesus Christ. And that's why we see Abel, who's right, you know, a child of Adam and Eve, offering a, a clean sacrifice, and God says, I love this. This is biblical. This is what I wanted. Uh, and then Cain, who offered the fruit of the ground, he didn't offer a bloody sacrifice. God was displeased. Because God, the only way sins can be forgiven is through the blood of Christ. <clears throat> so God is approached and worshipped through a propitiatory sacrifice. Since the Old Covenant Christ was represented in the tabernacle with its sacrifices, the Sabbath day had to be intimately connected to the ceremonies. Exodus 16.23, the law of the Sabbath has been given them before any other law by way of preparation. It had also been inserted in the body of the moral law, the fourth commandment, and it had been annexed to the judicial law. Exodus 23.12, and of course, uh, Exodus 31.13-17, it is added to the first part of the ceremonial law. And once again, 
not because it only applied to the Jews, but because the Jews were God-saved special people. And even Christians today, we have a double obligation, like the Jews did. We were saved by Christ. If you get a, a Hindu or a Muslim or a pagan, and they sing a psalm to God or a, a song of praise to God, God's not going to accept that, because it has to be offered through, through Jesus Christ. We're rotten sinners. We can only come to God through Christ. Now, some have argued that the Sabbath could not be a special sign between God and Israel if it had been morally binding on all nations, because then it would hold no special significance for Israel. <clears throat> well, this argument fails to take into account that the other nations of the world did not observe the Sabbath because they were not the recipients of divine revelation. They had not been set apart as the people of Israel had through miraculous redemptive acts. They, had not, they, did, uh, they did not have a ceremonial system in which to approach God, and they were not a God-called-out theocratic nation. The Sabbath was assigned between Israel and Yahweh only because of God's grace. While the moral foundation of the Sabbath is the creation ordinance, the knowledge of the day and the manner of keeping the day are both revealed by special revelation and special grace. <clears throat> Why do Muslims do it on Friday instead of Sunday? Because they don't accept the Bible. They have the Koran, which is a book written by a rapist and a murderer. It's a cult. It's a false religion. It's a satanic religion uh, based on murder and conquest, not on spiritual the spirituality of preaching the, the gospel of peace. God, by sanctifying this day among them, let them know that he sanctified them and set them apart for himself and his service. Otherwise, he would have not revealed to them his holy Sabbath to be the support of religion among them. If we sanctify the Lord's day, it is a sign between him and us that he has sanctified our hearts. So yes, we honor God's creation, obviously. We honor the fact that God is a creator, he's the Lord. But, as Christians, we honor the fact that he saved us through Jesus Christ, his son, and apart from Christ and his special revelation, which tells us of Jesus Christ, we're cursed, we're dead, we're finished. When the Jews kept the Sabbath day holy, they were declaring to the world that they worshiped the true God who created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. The general apostasy of the nations made this duty of visible Sabbath-keeping which God enjoins on all men of all ages, a badge and mark of those who still fear him. So when evangelicals dis, uh, say the Sabbath isn't binding and uh, you know go to the football games and go to the beach and go bowling and they might show up for worship, they might not, but they, if they do, they generally, the, the day's a humanistic day for them. They don't treat it as a special holy day. They're dishonoring what Christ has done for them. They may not be aware of it because they've been taught lies. They've been taught false theology, but that's a shame. It is a very special day. And when you got people like me who are a workaholic, I need God to force me to rest. Otherwise, I'd probably have a heart attack or something. And then just one more thing. Well, there's more things, but I'm just going to deal with the main ones. Here's, here's the third one, the Sabbath and the prophets. <clears throat> the prophets treated the Sabbath as a moral obligation that was binding on the Gentiles. In Isaiah 56, Jehovah speaks not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles concerning the duties which all men owe to God and one another. Listen to this. This is verses 1 to 2. 
Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold of it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and his hand from doing any evil. So note, the keeping of the Sabbath, according to the prophets, and of course the prophets is not the opinion of Isaiah, it's not the opinion of Jeremiah or Ezekiel, it's God speaking through them. The Sabbath is as much a duty to the Gentiles as keeping or not doing evil. Okay, it's, it's, it's as much a duty as not committing adultery or stealing. Not only does Isaiah apply the Sabbath to the Gentiles and place it within the category of the moral law, he also applies it prophetically to the Jews in the gospel dispensation. And here's what um, here's a quote from Francis Nigel Lee. His book is really hard to get. It's been out of print for probably 40 years. As Bickerseth points out, Isaiah 56, 2 must refer to the moral duty specified in the preceding verse, so that as the passage refers to the future times of the Christian church, it is deserving of particular notice that the Sabbath is not spoken of as an institution still existing in that more enlarged and spiritual condition of society, but as partaking of a moral character, which indeed from its place in the midst of the Decalogue, it possessed from the first and demanded a sacred observance. This prophecy pointed to the period when the house of God was to be called a house of prayer for all people, and at that period, the man who should keep the Sabbath from polluting it shall inherit the blessing of God. And commenting on Isaiah 56, uh, he says again, This is a particular phase of the same prophecy containing a distinct promise of the divine favor and acceptance being extended to the Gentile converts. And in this part of it, a repetition of the Sabbath in a manner so explicit that it can scarcely possible to imagine a stronger testimony could be given to the continued observance of the Sabbath in the Christian church. End of quote. <clears throat> so the prophets apply the Sabbath to the Gentiles in the, in the New Covenant era. Well, if it was abrogated by the coming of Christ, why would they do that? It doesn't make any sense. And of course, what did Jesus say in Matthew 24? He told his disciples, uh, he's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. He says, pray that, pray that this doesn't happen on the Sabbath day. In other words, the Sabbath was still binding. After Jesus was in heaven at the right hand of God, the Sabbath is still binding. Pray that it doesn't happen on the Sabbath day. Now, this obvi the obvious objection of non-Sabbatarian to Isaiah's prophecy is the mention also of sacrifices, burnt offerings, and the altar in the temple in verse 7. But if we look at the New Testament, uh, how it interprets the Old, it is evident that all these terms are symbolic of a pure New Testament gospel worship. We see this. Uh, if you could read my book on, against premillennialism, and I go through all these Old Testament prophecies of the future when Christ comes back. I'm, I'm not when Christ comes back, but the New Covenant era. And they talk about the blessings of the New Covenant era with the Old Testament language. All the nations are going to come to Jerusalem and worship uh, on Mount Zion. Uh, this is not a prophecy of Christ returning and setting up a worldly kingdom. It's just using Old Testament language for, for New Testament prophecies. Now, a chapter that clearly places the Sabbath within the moral laws, Isaiah 58. And this chapter deals with the hypocritical worship of the house of Jacob. The Jews were trying to impress God by their fasting, yet while they were doing so, they were continually breaking God's moral law. The biblical method of fasting includes true repentance, for which the Jews involved letting the oppressed go free, verse 6, sharing one's bread with the hungry, sheltering the poor, covering the naked, verse 7. There's no welfare back then, so if you're poor, this is not the homeless people who are getting free money from the state and they're shooting up and they're 
smoking crack or smoking, uh, shooting fentanyl and taking a crap out in the streets. That's not what they're talking. This is truly poor people. Um, Stopping wicked speech and helping the afflicted soul, verse 10. This chapter is obviously not dealing with ceremonial infractions, but ethical lapses among the people. It is in this context that Jehovah says, uh, if you turn your foot away from the Sabbath from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in the high hills of the earth, and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Verses 13 to 14. Remember in the Old Testament, this is a very common theme. The Jews were super good at keeping the external rituals. They didn't mind the external rituals. Their problem was keeping the moral aspects of the law. That's why God, you find this repeatedly, I desire your mercy, not sacrifice. Does God desire sacrifice? Yeah, of course, it's part of his law. It represents the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It to, to make a sacrifice in faith is to look to Christ. But they were doing the sacrifices thinking that they could go out and live in sin and ignore the moral law, and God would, uh, you, they could use the ceremonies to get away with it. Like the Roman Catholic who uh, is committing adultery and stealing in his business, yet he goes to confession every week. No, conf- you have to repent. <laughs> Christ didn't come so we could sin. He came so we could repent and follow him. Thus, the main scope of this 58th chapter of Isaiah is to dissuade the Jews from a ceremonial righteousness by showing its worthlessness when unaccompanied by spiritual holiness. <clears throat> there ardently urged to offer God instead of a ritual sacrifice the duties of inward righteousness and especially of caring and having compassion on the poor, the orphan, and the widow. To these the blessing is promised. Now in this connection the prophet also urges a spiritual Sabbath observance and to it he repeats the same promises. And he also connects this right kind of Sabbath observance immediately with the glorious messianic triumphs of Zion, which we know from all subsequent history occur only under the new dispensation. It is simply impossible for the candid reader to take in the anti-ceremonial aim of the whole passage and to believe that Isaiah uh, here thought of the Sabbath observance as a typical or ceremonial duty. It's obviously not true. And if you read, if you go on to read uh, uh, the, the example where the Jews were breaking the Sabbath, the civil officials closed the gates of the city and didn't let any commerce take place in the Sabbath. Which contradicts mo- the modern Jews. What the modern Jews do is they keep their stores open on their version of the Sabbath, but they only have a, Gentiles work them. No, it applies to the Gentiles, it applies to your cattle, it applies to your mule, it applies to your work animals, it applies to everybody. Well, let's look at their objections now. I just covered very briefly common arguments used by Christians up until the rise of dispensationalism in favor of a perpetual moral Sabbath. Well, let's look at the evangelical objections. As we turn our attention to the common evangelical arguments against the New Covenant Sabbath, we will do so. uh, We will see that a proper grammatical, historical interpretation of the passages used will prove that the dispensational rejection of the Fourth Commandment is unwarranted and unbiblical. Now, the person in my church was on the internet, and they were, of course, arguing about Christmas and so forth. And all these evangelicals brought up, this is the passage they all pointed to. This is the passage that they used against the Sabbath. So we want to see 
does it really teach that Jesus came to abrogate the Sabbath? And we'll see, absolutely not. We already read Matthew uh, 12, 1 to 12. It's repeated in, in Mark uh, with slight differences, and it's repeated in Luke. <coughs> oh, there are a number of proof texts. The first is Matthew 12, 1 to 8, where the Pharisees object to Jesus' disciples plucking grain on the Sabbath day. Now, the dispensational says, yeah, they were breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus is fine with that because Jesus did away with the Sabbath. He got rid of it. That's the evangelical argument. That comes from dispensationalism. According to the common evangelical interpretation, Jesus is arguing that his disciples really did break the Sabbath, and they could do so because as Lord of the Sabbath, he came to abrogate it. It is no longer binding on Christians. Very common argument. According to this view, the full fourth commandment is ceremonial or purely positive, and was set out of gear by the coming of Christ. And we've already seen that's impossible due to the creation ordinance and the fourth commandment, and of course the prophets. We will see that the examination of this passage, such an interpretation is totally unwarranted, it's totally unbiblical. The controversy here between Jesus and the Pharisees is not whether or not the Sabbath is binding, but on what Sabbath observance entails. What is required of the Sabbath? The various pharisaical scribal additions to the fourth commandment in order to fence the law, and they did that to all courts of law, as they saw it, had turned the law into a burden and had restricted the ability to perform good works in the Sabbath, which was lawful. So once again, Christ's issue is not with God's law. He said, I, he said in Matthew 5, I didn't come to get rid of the law. I require every jot and tittle of the law. I'm not going to get rid of it. <clears throat> And we know this interpretation is the correct one because, number one, the ceremonial laws were not abolished until Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. Number two, so they're, they're kind of premature here. Jesus is still a Jew living among the Jews, keeping the Jewish laws. The Sabbath didn't, the, the ceremonial laws were not abrogated until Jesus died on the cross. So the idea that he got rid of the Sabbath before he died is ridiculous. Number two, in verse 7, Jesus plainly proclaims his disciples' behavior in plucking grain. They say that they are guiltless. In other words, they didn't violate the Sabbath. They're guiltless. Number three, our Lord's arguments as to why his disciples' behavior was lawful on the Sabbath day came from the Old Testament. He doesn't argue, hey, I've come. I've got rid of it now. He goes back to the Old Testament and points to David. And then he points to the priests who work in the temple. And then he, talk, he quotes from Hosea saying, no, if we interpret the Old Testament correctly, we didn't break the Sabbath. And we'll look at that in a second. Not one of his arguments is based on a change of administration. So let us examine this passage more closely and, and, and note the major details first. The occasion of this incident, as you all know, <coughs> involves the disciples. They're, they're traveling from one town to another. It's the seventh day of the week. And... Jesus liked to make, take advantage of the Sabbath day to, to preach in synagogues because the Jews would come together on the, uh, and so they're traveling to another town to preach the gospel, basically. <clears throat> they're walking, and as they're walking through a field, uh, they pluck some of the grains, the heads of grain, and rub them together on their hands, and they're eating the grain. They're very hungry. Now, according to the Pharisees, such behavior involved reaping a crop which involved labor. They did not accuse the disciples of stealing because Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 says that people have a right 
to pick and eat grain on the edges of the fields. So they weren't accusing them of stealing, they were accusing them of harvesting. The disciples were very hungry and were involved in the ministry with Jesus that day, and they had every right to pluck some of the heads of the grain. Second, there's the accusation. Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Now, the idea that plucking a few ears of grain on the Sabbath because one is very hungry is reaping is patently absurd. But that is the Jewish interpretation, and that Jewish interpretation still existed in the days of Maimonides. He's in the Middle Ages. It demonstrates the absurdity of the Pharisaic legalism. They were going beyond what God had required. They taught that plucking a few heads of grain was reaping and that rubbing it together to get the chaff off was threshing. That's what is taught in the Mishnah, the Talmud. Now, that's written around the 2nd century AD, but it's an accumulation of things that go way back before that. It's in, it's in the Mishnah, and of course it's taught in the Middle Ages by the Jews. Here's what Maimonides said, to pluck ears is a kind of reaping. That's Maimonides, the Jewish rabbi, very popular Jewish rabbi. <clears throat> a modern comparison to such absurd legalism is the fundamentalist who goes beyond the commandment not to get drunk, and proclaims that it is a sin to have a glass of wine or one beer, uh, or any alcoholic beverages at all. Oh, it's a sin! I remember when I was a fundamentalist Baptist, and they the pastor would say, if you, that beer touches your tongue, get a bar of soap and wash out your mouth! Get that satanic liquid out of your mouth! That's all nonsense. The Jews drank wine every day. Getting drunk is a sin. Drinking alcoholic beverages in moderation, where you don't get inebriated, is not a sin at all. Such a requirement is humanistic and sinful. No one, no man, no church, no elder, no pastor has the authority to go beyond what God requires in his word. Correct? If you say he has that authority, then you're a good Roman Catholic. And then third, there is Jesus' refutation of the Pharisees. Accusation. Our Lord, our Lord points to two examples of lawful activity and teaching uh, of awful activity from the Old Testament. He gives two historical examples, and then he gives a text to back it up, Hosea. Number one, the case of King David shows an example of what is normally would not be allowed on the Sabbath is allowed under extraordinary circumstances or in order to do good works. David was pursued by King Saul, who wanted to kill him. David had a circle of friends with him. And they were famished, and they were had no food at all. They were totally famished. They needed food bad. So the priest of Nob, N-O-B, gave David the consecrated bread, that's bread set apart for the priest. He gave it to him and his men to eat, which under normal circumstances was not allowed. It was for the priest. But since David was God's anointed, his cause was just, and he needed food, Due to the persecution, it was lawful and good for the priest to give him that consecrated bread. It's better to give somebody food and not let him starve than to honor a ceremonial law about the consecrated bread. It's, it's lawful to do good. Christ's statement, have you not read, has the sense here, uh, have you not perceived the significance of this narrative for what we did today? We're on our way to preach the gospel. We're, we're very hungry. We need something. It is uh, lawful to have mercy on someone and save them on the Sabbath. 
That is why in Mark's account we read, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2.27 If God's nation or people are attacked on the Sabbath, it is lawful to pick up arms and defend oneself. Now, you normally wouldn't go out and have a military exercise on the Sabbath. But if you're attacked by another nation, you have to. It's a work of necessity. That's why it's lawful to have a police force on the Sabbath, because criminals don't obey the law. It's lawful to have doctors and nurses work on the Sabbath, because people get sick on the Sabbath. Number two. The next example is the priests who labor in the temple. The priests had all sorts of spiritual duties to perform on the Sabbath. Burning incense, Leviticus 24-7. Changing the bread of the presence, 24, Leviticus 24-8. Offering a double burnt offering, Numbers 28-9-10, etc. And also in the, in the synagogues every Sabbath, they were teaching the law. The, the, the uh, spiritual labors involved in serving God are clearly allowed on the Sabbath day. It's obvious. The disciples traveling to a new town to preach the gospel and eating a few heads of grain to have energy to do so is obviously not a violation of the Sabbath day. And then number three, I'm almost done. I know I've gone an hour. <clears throat> Jesus quotes the scripture as proof of his historical examples and the innocency of his disciples from Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He's like, we're not going to the shopping mall. We're not on our way to the shopping mall. We're not eating heads of grain to go shopping. We're not going down to the beach to go surfing. We're not eating heads of grain because we want to go surfing. We're on our way to preach the gospel. We're doing acts of mercy. Therefore, it's perfectly lawful for us to eat these heads of grain. Acts of mercy have always been lawful on the Sabbath. Preaching the gospel, pulling an animal out of the ditch, feeding the poor, visiting orphans and widows. And this interpretation is supported by Luke 6.6, 6, where the disciples accused Jesus of violating the fourth commandment because he healed a, a withered hand. And Jesus' response is, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he's asked, is it, right after this account, Lord, is it lawful for, for people to do good on the Sabbath? And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 12.12. 12, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. You want to go to an old folks' home, visit some old widows. You want to go to a soup kitchen and feed some poor. You want to go hand out tracts and maybe have a little street preaching. All those things are lawful on the Sabbath. It's not lawful to go shopping. It's not lawful to work a job that's not a work of necessity. It's not lawful to be mowing your lawn and raking leaves. It's not lawful to work in any capacity unless it's a, a, you're a cop or you're in the medical field or you're in the military and we're attacked. There are works of necessity and there are works of mercy. Preaching and writing sermons is a lot of work, but it has to be done on the Sabbath day, and God doesn't mind one bit, because it's a work of necessity, and it's a good work. And then Jesus ends this refutation of the Pharisees' accusation with two statements that are crucial. First, he tells them that if they understand Scripture correctly, verse 7, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So what is he saying? Now, he just quoted two scriptural examples from the Old Testament, where the law is obviously abiding. He just quoted a prophet to support his look at historical examples. And now he flat out says, plainly, they didn't violate the Sabbath. They're guiltless. He doesn't say, yeah, they violated the Sabbath, but it's okay because I got rid of the Sabbath. That's the common evangelical interpretation. Jesus doesn't say that. He says they're guiltless. They didn't violate the Sabbath. You knuckleheads have added on 
legalistic accretions on the Sabbath, and they violated your legalism, but they didn't violate God's law. And the idea that Jesus would get rid of the commandment and break one of God's commandments is almost blasphemous. He says explicitly that the disciples did not violate the Sabbath. Then second, he asserts his authority as the Son of God. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Verse 8. Now this passage is usually twisted by evangelicals to mean that as Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus had the authority to abrogate it. Hey, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. If you want to break it, go ahead. That's not what he's saying. The word for connects this statement to the quote from Hosea in verse 7. And thus it explains that as Lord, as the one who wrote this commandment on stone with his own finger on the mount, he always intended the practice of mercy, spiritual works, and good deeds of compassion to be lawful and good on the Sabbath. He's not saying, oh, I'm Lord of the Sabbath, you can break the Sabbath. He's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath and I made the rules. And I say it's, good to, it's lawful to have mercy on someone and do good. Go visit an old lady in an old folks' home. They've been abandoned by their families. They're miserable. They're lonely. Go visit them. We had a ministry. We'd go to old folks' homes once a month. We did it for several years until the nurses finally kicked us out because they, they got angry. These tattooed white trash nurses, uh, these whores, got mad because they didn't want to hear the gospel and they, they threw us out. The old people loved it. They just loved having someone to talk to because they were neglected by their families. Is there anything more important or merciful than the preaching of the gospel, which is what Jesus and his disciples were do, going to do on the Sabbath? And then just very briefly, because we've run out of time, uh, here's the other main one. I, Colossians I didn't have time for, but it's very similar to this. Romans 14, 5 to 6. The other passage that's most commonly quoted, and this is also quoted in favor of Christmas, it has nothing to do with Christmas. Uh, Romans 14, 4 to 5. One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each one be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. And this is quoted by evangelical as saying, hey, if you want to keep the Sabbath day, go ahead. But if you don't, that's fine. doesn't matter. You don't, have to, you don't have to observe it. If you think you should, go ahead. But if you think you shouldn't, don't do it. Is that what Paul is teaching? And the answer is absolutely not. <coughs> He's telling the Roman believers that Christ's death has made the creation, or is he, is he saying that the creation ordinance is op optional? Not at all. Paul is dealing with a situation, and this is, this is why learning exegesis, I should do a class on how to interpret scripture. What is Paul speaking to? What is Paul speaking, what situation is he speaking to in the Roman church? And the answer is very obviously, there were people who had become Christians, who were Jews, who were raised as Jews, who always kept the ceremonial Sabbaths from the time they were born. This has nothing to do with Christmas, which is a pagan day added in the 4th century. It has nothing to do with the moral Sabbath. There were Jews who were, had been taught their whole life to keep these ceremonial Sabbaths, and they couldn't, with a clear conscience, not celebrate them anymore. They thought it was still obligated. That's what he's dealing with. And virtually all commentators agree that the days spoken of refer to ceremonial holy days of the Levitical institution, not the Christian Sabbath. So Paul, in that unique period of history, 
between the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, his ascension, and the destruction of Israel in AD 70, uh, allows for diversity in the church over the issue of Jewish holy days or ceremonial Sabbaths. It's a unique situation. These people were raised under the old covenant administration. There's a covenantal overlap between the old administration and the new. If you'd been taught from the time you were born, you've got to keep these ceremonial days. We've got to keep them. It's really going to be hard for you not to keep them anymore. When Jesus died on the cross, the ceremony aspects of the law, the animal sacrifices, the Jewish holy days, the circumcision was rendered obsolete and were abrogated. Yet prior to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, the apostles allowed certain practices by the Jewish Christians to be kept as long as no works righteousness was attributed to these practices. In Acts 21, 26, the apostle Paul even goes to the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification. What happened was, is Paul had made a vow to God before he was a Christian. And after he became a Christian, he kept the vow. <clears throat> but once the temple was destroyed, the canon of scripture was completed, and the church had existed for a whole generation, these unique historical circumstances ceased. The idea that Paul is taking one of the Ten Commandments, something based on creation, and of course salvation, and saying it if you want to keep it, go ahead. If you don't want to keep it, go ahead. That's absolutely absurd. And then, of course, after MacArthur appeals to passages like this, after evangelical preachers appeal to passages like this, then they say, well, yeah, you should go to church every week, though. You really should. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. And, of course, when we look at the New Testament, I don't have time to deal with it, but if you look at the New Testament, the church always met in the first day of the week. In Corinthians, when you come together on the first day of the week, make sure you leave your tithes at, the, at church. The assumption is, and he's talking about the, all the churches of Galatia, the assumption is, is that every church in the whole presbytery of Galatia worshipped on the first day of the week. They kept the Sabbath on the first day of the week. But I'm not going to go into the change of day. That would take a whole other hour. When Paul taught on the subject of the relationship between men and women in the home and in the church, he repeatedly pointed to the creation of Eve and the creation ordinance of marriage. 1 Corinthians 11, 8 to 9, Ephesians 5, 31, 1 Timothy 3. Furthermore, as we dealt with, there is abundant evidence in the New Testament that after Christ's resurrection, the church always met for public worship on the first day of the week. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, 2, Revelation 1, 10. Thus, although the day was changed, the creation ordinance pattern of six days a week for, for work and one day of rest was not changed. The day of rest and the day of concentrated worship has always been one and the same. Therefore, Paul could not have been arguing that some believers, if they so desire, can attend to the means of grace and sanctify the Lord's Day, while others, if they so desire, can sleep and, and go to the beach. So we'll stop there. But this is a shame. The, the influence of dispensationalism, even though it's uh, the hardcore dispensationalism of Schofield and Darby, uh, which was prominent in the 1920s and 30s, uh, has been greatly watered down because it's contained so many things that are obviously unbiblical. Modern Baptists, modern seminaries, modern evangelicals have been chipping away at the edifice, this, this horrible heresy for generations, and now it's been watered down. I mean, the old classic dispensationalism taught that the Jews in the Old Testament were saved by animals, not by Christ, which is clearly heretical. But anyway, I hope you see that the Sabbath day is still binding. It's a blessed day. It's a good thing. So let us keep the Sabbath. And I hope that answers any questions. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this day.
Help us, Lord, to not do our own pleasures on this day, but to meditate on Christ in your works and to study and, and look to you, Lord, and rest. Rest from our labors. We need it. And exalt your son, Jesus Christ, for the eighth day, the first day of the week, is the day of recreation. It's the day of, our sal it's the day of salvation when Christ walked out of that tomb. Due to that, we will be resurrected unto life. Due to that, we will have resurrected bodies. Due to that, we will enter into an eternal Sabbath rest in heaven with you. So we thank you for the work of Christ. We thank you for the Sabbath day, Lord. We ask you, Lord, bend our hearts. Cause us to be more diligent about keeping the Sabbath. <clears throat> in Jesus' name, amen.